It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And a pleasant good afternoon to you. Welcome on board. Five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. on your basic Thursday edition of Lifeline. Good afternoon to you. Trust you're having a great week so far. Been cold, clammy, wet outside, and wherever you might be headed on this Thursday, well, we're awfully glad that we're going to get a chance to keep some company with you. We've got... Michael Bennett hanging out in the KFAX Traffic Center. Keep your prize of what's going on traffic-wise. Our number two tonight, our first official installment of the Parenting Project. And uh, we're looking forward to a visit with Vern Tyler as he dives into the first of our series on powerful parenting. That will happen every Thursday evening at 6 p.m. right here on KFAX. So class will be officially in session. We invite you to stay tuned for that. There is pressure being put on the White House today, um, in particular coming from the EU, who is calling on President Trump to hold off on imposing sanctions on Iran. We're going to get complete details for you coming up later on as Herb London, the president of the London Center for Policy Research, joins us later on in this hour. Before we meet our first guest tonight, a bit of a news bulletin for those in the North Bay. Santa Rosa police reporting that SWAT team is in a standoff at this hour in the area of Dutton and Barnum Avenues. Police are asking to folks stay well clear of the area. Police spokesperson Summer Black says that a citizen reported an armed man was potentially holding suspects inside a home on Dutton Avenue at the intersection of Dutton and Barnum in Santa Rosa. Again, uh, police are asking folks who live in the area, you're heading home hearing this announcement, um, stay away if you would until police give the all clear. I remember a story a number of years ago that was collaborated by a number of sources that at the height of the initial round of talk of global warming, it was uncovered that the principal proponent of global warming, former Vice President Al Gore, spent a bit of money on natural resources in his home in Nashville. In fact, his annual... Gas and electric bill was $35,000. That's right, $35,000 a year. I don't know that I've spent that amount of money in my house in 20 years. Thirty-five grand a year for gas and electricity, all the while telling folks that we need to do something immediately to address the issue of climate change, lest the world completely collapse. And as we're now experiencing a significant deep freeze in many parts of North America. California once again into the fray. In fact, there is a lawsuit afoot. A number of localities suing over the issue of climate change, failing to mention that as they are issuing bonds, (laughs) they've made a lot of money on some of the very companies that they say we should be working to shut down. In fact, uh, One report shows that the amount of money that some of these cities in California have made on dead dinosaurs is in the billions of dollars in profits. Talk about the double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Seton Motley joins us, president of lessgovernment.com. And Seton, I guess at certain levels, and I say this as a Californian, we shouldn't at all together be surprised by this news. 
Seaton, are you there? Yeah, I didn't. I you didn't. Well, you weren't audible to like the last five words. Oh, okay. Well, you didn't miss much. <laughs> uh, the news that these these countries, these countries, these cities are making billions of dollars off of the very same kinds of companies and fuels, essentially dead dinosaurs that they say we ought to be outlawing. I guess to a certain level, none of us should really be surprised. No, no. And again, it's 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 really amazing to watch these companies or these cities. Like I did what you did. These municipalities spend thirty years overspending government money, and then going to bond investors, and for thirty years saying there is no climate change damage imminent. There's no climate change damage in the future. Or at the very least, we have no idea whether there's going to be climate change damage in the future, and therefore lend us money so we can keep overspending as a government. And then after 30 years of that behavior, then filing a lawsuit against 18 energy companies, claiming imminent looming damage as a result of climate change, it's just completely hypocritical and completely obnoxious and an abuse of government power on multiple levels. I mentioned in my opening remarks uh, the revelation a number of years ago that as Al Gore was first going around the country warning us all about the sky falling and the world as we know it was going to end any moment was the same guy who was spending thirty-five grand a year to provide uh, fuel, both gas and electricity, for his Nashville mansion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they have houses that are city blocks long, big. I mean, it's it's just unbelievable. As I said in the piece, you have these Silicon Valley Hollywood jet-set environmentalists taking their private jets from their 500-foot yachts to their 50,000-square-foot houses, and then like telling us we have to go back in time 30 years for economy size in order to downsize our carbon footprint. It's just absurd. Isn't this degree of duplicitous, though? I mean, we're, we're seeing this uh, more and more, particularly out of places like Silicon Valley or Hollywood. I mean, uh, look, for example, all of the hubbub over the Golden Globes. Everybody's out there protesting, you know, their shock and horror over the misbehavior of uh, the certain Hollywood movie moguls, and yet here they've been producing films that objectify women and glorify violence and sex for the last two generations, and now suddenly they're just shocked to find out that it's going on in Hollywood. Isn't it the well, same degree just, it, of, it of really, duplicitness? It really, it really impresses me that, every, let's be realistic, everybody in Hollywood knew about Harvey Weinstein. It seems like a lot of people knew about Kevin Spacey. Um, you got guys like Corey Feldman who were child actors who have been saying for a quarter century now that they were abused as children sexually. Uh, by Hollywood uh, moguls and, and, and producers and directors and all that. And, and we've had this percolating under the surface for a quarter century, and then it all explodes out into the open all at once. And then within two or three or four months, whatever it was, you get Oprah Winfrey and everybody there in black lecturing the rest of the country on silencing women and abusing women. Meanwhile, this was the den of iniquity for half a century. 
So the same sort of uh, duplicitness is taking place when it comes to this whole issue of climate change. And, of course, it's getting more and more difficult for the purveyors of this to sort of continue to to peddle their wares, isn't it? I mean, we're we're looking at, over the last couple of weeks, Niagara Falls freezing while we're telling, uh, you know... There inches of snow in the Sahara Desert. Yeah, and and meanwhile, we're being told, look out, because climate change is going to cause us to have soaring temperatures. We're all going to die tomorrow. And I've been, you know, I'm I'm stuck in the on the East Coast, and I've been freezing for a month. Where it was like, <laughs> I'm talking to, I do a radio show twice a week in South Texas in Corpus Christi, and, and the, the running joke for like a month was because I get up real early, I go to the gym, and then I do this radio show at seven o'clock Eastern, a.m. And he said, "What's the temperature seat?" And I said, "It's eight. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's eight degrees. It's miserable." And I've already been up for an hour and a half. Um, yeah, so, no, uh, you know, they can't, they can't tell us what the weather's going to be like this weekend, but they're telling us what it's going to be like in 50 years. Is this going to be a difficult case for ExxonMobil to, to win or an easy one, in your opinion? Um, they've had a, you know, I, I've written a lot and looked a lot at uh, New, New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman has been hounding Exxon, at, exclu- not exclusively, but mainly for the last several years. And they keep filing dumb lawsuits and keep losing. Obviously, it depends on, you know, what ridiculous judge you get. Uh, you know, you've got this judge now in, in, in your beautiful town of San Francisco who just somehow managed to rule that reversing the unconstitutional DACA was unconstitutional. But in a all things being equal and not having an insane judge, it's going to be really difficult for, uh, you know, a, a fair-minded judge to look at what these municipalities are claiming, given their behavior in the last three decades. And rule for, rule in their favor. And when you take into consideration the fact that they have been making money, boatloads of money, in fact, by one estimation, $8 billion in profits over the last three decades off of the very company that they're now suing, kind of makes you wonder what's going through their minds. All right, Seton Modley, president of Less Government. Seton, as always, we appreciate the time and the the revelations. Keep them coming, my friend. Happy New Year to you. 5.15 on the clock. We're going to turn a corner here, try to get you around it as easily as we possibly can. Let's get a look at traffic right now. We've got Michael Bennett standing by with the latest in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the program, 20 minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. European leaders today calling on President Trump to hold off on imposing sanctions on Iran. Correspondent Bill Zimfer has the latest. The president has to decide by tomorrow whether to put oil sanctions on Iran back into effect. European leaders do not want to see that happen. Representatives of Britain, France, Germany, and the European Union are calling on the president to keep everything as is to protect the Iran nuclear pact saying the people of Iran have a right to benefit from the lifting of those sanctions. Bill Zimfer, NBC News Radio. Of course, this um, sort of peels back an onion to layers of complexity because many might argue that the very people that were supposed to benefit from not just the Iranian oil deal, but the unfreezing of $100 billion in assets and um, a little dollop of a cherry on top of another billion dollars in cash from the United States, because we're just generous that way, should have benefited the people of Iran. But apparently, at least on the heels of the estimation of some of the recent protests that have taken place around the country, that trickle-down has failed to do so. 
Well, some insights on not just the current spate of protest, but whether or not this Iranian nuclear deal needs to really be given a serious second look at. We're joined by Herb London. Herb is president of the London Center for Policy Research, also serves as a senior fellow with the Manhattan Institute and former president of the Hudson Institute. He's the author, by the way, of a new book called Leading from Behind the Obama Doctrine and the U.S. Retreat from International Affairs. And Herb, always a delight to have you on the program. Pleasure to be with you, sir. Herb, let's talk first about the decision that the president is wrestling with right now over whether or not to rescind portions of the Iranian nuclear deal that included the issue of sale of oil. We've seen, of course, ongoing protest over the last several weeks. Some say, in some respects, even more significant than the so-called Green Movement of 2009. What first of the protest? What do we make of all of this? Well, first of all, there are protests across 80 cities in Iran. This is a much more ubiquitous problem than occurred in 2009 when it was largely youthful dissonance. These are elderly people and youthful people and people of various ages and backgrounds, including many minorities. There is no doubt that there's widespread desire to undo 1979, the Khomeini revolution. I think what the Iranians are saying is we want to change. To some degree, it's understandable. You have a a well-educated population that is provided with very few opportunities to get ahead. The money that Iran has is being spent in Yemen. It is being spent in Gaza. It's being spent in Syria. But it's not being spent in Iran. And there's a good deal of resentment about that. And so I do think that this is a very powerful movement, different from 2009, and one that could conceivably overturn the government. And I suppose part of the reason for that, as you suggest, is because this is so significantly more widespread than the last protest of 2009. I mean, there it was kind of isolated to Tehran. I think all told about 28 were killed, 450 arrests. So far, this has led to 3,700 arrests, 21 deaths, 12 of which just over the last um, several days. And uh, all of this, of course, as you point out, is across the country. It's not just small cities and towns. It's big cities as well. And this has got to be very troubling to not only Iranian President Hussein Rouhani, but also Khomeini, uh, the, the, the ruling uh, religious elite that have to be looking at this saying, gee, th- th- this is an issue that could potentially, if it's allowed to fester, cause the nation to unravel politically. One of the uh, points that, of course, has to be made, which we have not yet made, is that there's a distinction between 2009 and 2016, 17, 18. And that is the fact that the United States government stands behind the dissidents. Now, I know that there's very little leverage that Donald Trump has. And if we had a CIA with things, maybe the kind of CIA that existed in the 1950s, things might be very different in regime change. But they do not, that does not exist. But there is nonetheless great emotional support on the part of the president who said, I am watching. I care about what happens on the streets of Iran. This is very, very different from Obama, who argued, I do not want to in any way jeopardize the Iran deal. And as a consequence, I'm not going to say or do anything. Very, very different. Now, it's true there are many in Iran who remain somewhat cynical about Trump. Because they say, why didn't he decertify the nuclear deal? And, of course, that may still happen. 
Well, and perhaps there's also another significant difference, as you point out, Herb, between what transpired in 2009 during the Green Movement and today, and that is 100 billion reasons, the unfreezing of Iranian assets, which was touted by Hassan Rouhani as a major victory for Iran and the Iranian people. And yet over the course of, of the two years since that deal was first inked back in 2015, now going on three years, the impact, the positive impact on the uh, citizens of Iran really never has been felt, in spite of the fact that they've got this influx of a lot of cash. Well, those pallets of of currency, of uh, euros, that came into the country, obviously have been spent. But they've been spent, as I've suggested, promoting terrorism, promoting revolution. And when you consider that the Houthis are using weapons that have a, an Iranian signature on them, there is no doubt that the Iranians stand behind what is going on in Yemen. And there is no doubt that the Iranians stand behind what is happening in Syria. A lot of that money is being spent in those countries. And that, of course, is as I've suggested before, what has led to an an enormous amount of resentment. Part of it, too, I I, I would suppose the the excuse factory out of Tehran, I would think, has got to be growing a bit thin, particularly amongst younger Iranians who see the constant blaming, as we're seeing yet once again in this current cycle of protests, um, saying that Israel is behind this, the United States is behind this, even in a recent speech by the Khomeini suggesting that uh, it's nemesis of the region without specifically naming the country, but everybody who read between the lines knew that they were talking about Saudi Arabia and suggesting that Saudi Arabia has also been an instigator of these protests. I mean, it, it not only suggests that there is a huge disconnect with the concerns being expressed by the protesters, but I would imagine that that younger people have got to be looking at this saying, wait a minute now, it, you know, at what point does Tehran begin to take responsibility here? It's also true that young people in Iran admire the United States more than the young people of any country in the Middle East, with the possible exception of Israel. Iran is a pro-American nation. People overlook that and are unaware of it. But there is no doubt that if you were to ask people in Iran, where would you like to live other than, of course, Iran itself, they're going to say the United States. So there's great affection for America. And I don't think that people believe the United States is behind this disruption. I mean, it's also true that while the crown prince may be salivating over what is happening, I doubt very much whether he has the resources to intervene in any way in Iran. He's undoubtedly very happy about it and would like to see that government fall. But he has, he doesn't have the resources to make things happen in Iran. Is there another difference, too, if we try to juxtapose Iran and attitudes about liberty, freedom, free speech, America, juxtaposed against countries like Iraq or Afghanistan that that what I what's been explained to me and and, and please correct me here Herb if I'm way off the mark but what has been explained to me is that Iran, unlike Iraq and Afghanistan, is a nation that in many respects is very modern. If there could be a Europe of the Middle East, it would be Iran. 
And so, in a sense, many of the attitudes, the education level, um, the, the beliefs that are held by the average Iranian citizen are very different than those of citizens of Iraq and Afghanistan. And therefore, we can't expect that Iran is going to do or behave in any fashion anywhere near what we've seen over the last uh, decade, decade, decade and a half out of Iraq and Afghanistan. Is that at all accurate? Well, I, I think it's not only accurate. It's a very telling point. Prior to the introduction of Khomeini in 1979, the textbooks that were written about modernization in the Middle East invariably referred to the Shah and what was going on in Iran. It was seen as a model for the future. It was seen as the new Middle East. And you have an educated population, very different, as you suggested, from what you might find in Afghanistan. There is no doubt that these well-educated people are frustrated, in part because they understand the nature of liberalization and modernization. They want to move towards the Iran that had great hope in a pathway in the period before 79. Were it not for Brzezinski and President Carter, Iran would be in a very different position today. Those people came to the conclusion that Iran needed this kind of change. And so they, they take this fellow from Paris, Khomeini, who makes all kinds of promises, and they allow him to create a theological state at a time when the Iranians did not want to embrace that form of, uh, of government. We saw, of course, back in 2009, I think with a great sense of hope, sort of the continuation with, with the protest that broke out across Tehran as a, a hopefully a continuation of the so-called Islamic Spring and the, the, the downfall of regimes in places like Libya and Egypt, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We know, of course, that they immediately brought that to a halt, that in some respects the protests at the time in Tehran were uh, not altogether treated differently than the way the protest were treated in Tiananmen Square in communist China. Uh, the, the question is, what is different about this particular set of protests? And is the time now, is the clock, the proverbial clock on the regime in Iran ticking? We'll get an insight from Herb London on that question when we come back after a brief timeout. If you've just joined us, our visit today is with Herb London, president of the London Center for Policy Research. He is an expert in the arena of foreign affairs and is offering some insights on not just the recent protests, in Iran, also calls for the president not to reverse the deal that was inked by Obama back in 2015 in relationship to the nuclear arms um, agreement and oil. And then, too, when we come back, we'll talk about whether or not, as I suggest, maybe the time, the clock is ticking here. We'll get back to more of our conversation with Herb London right after this brief timeout. Right now, though, Let's get you a look at traffic, 531 on the clock, and the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. Once again, Michael Bennett. Michael, what's going on? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our visit with the foreign affairs expert Herb London continues, president of the London Center for Policy Research and senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. We've been talking about the topic of Iran. And word earlier today that Germany was calling on the U.S. to stick with the Iranian nuclear deal inked by President Obama back in 2015. Germany's foreign minister spoke about the uh, spoke before the European Union in Brussels today on the topic and said that Tehran has always denied seeking nuclear arms and that Trump should abide by the deal. Of course, there are several questions that this raises. One of the questions, too, 
in light of the recent spate of protests is what may be different about this series of protests. One of the things, Herb, that we pointed to prior to the break is first how widespread it is compared to the 2009 Green Movement. Not just widespread, but I think interesting, too, that when you when you add things like there's no clear instigators or opposition group that's trying to to drive all of this. So that would suggest that it's more grassroots. And and I would suspect, given things like a national unemployment rate that hovers at 12.7 percent, some suggest that unemployment amongst youth is two times that number, that a lot of this points to not only deep-seated anger and resentment, but I have to wonder whether or not this movement has essentially started the clock ticking now for the future of Tehran, meaning if the regime doesn't make some severe changes soon, could we see more of this? Could this regime potentially be toppled? Well, I, I, I tried to answer that question during the break, but obviously I was talking to a silent uh, person on the other side. The uh, the argument that I would make is I don't know if this regime will fall this month or this year, but I do feel that's the beginning of the end, that this is a very ubiquitous movement, quite different from 2009, that involves the entire country. There is very little support for this ruthless administration. And even though they will arrest a lot of people and probably kill a lot of people, the dissidents are undoubtedly committed to seeing this regime change. This kind of commitment, where people put their lives on the line, is something that Americans are not accustomed to. But there is no doubt that that kind of commitment, as unusual as it is, demonstrates something about the desire of the Iranians to see a new government. They are not being sent to country club or prisons. This is not Bernie Madoff going to some country club. Their, their life is clearly going to be jeopardized. They will be tortured. But they understand that and are perfectly willing to pay that price. This is a remarkable set of conditions. And as I indicated, I'm absolutely persuaded this is different from what we've experienced before. And I do think it will have a profound effect on the Iran of the future. I have to wonder, too, looking at some of the photographs of the of the protesters that have been uh, managed to, to to make their way out of out of Iran, um, looking at the demographics uh, where the 1979 uh, uprising w- was clearly youth driven. It, it was born at the University of Tehran. And so very much amongst that 20 uh, something demographic. Uh, this is strong in that arena. But you also see a lot of middle aged people. It, it seems to be a bit more uh, um, demographically broad than some of the protests in the past. Does that also suggest that the sense of, of frustration with Tehran is so widespread that it adds a layer of, of vulnerability then uh, to the future of the government? Well, even people who are upper middle class or middle class and middle-aged, they're saying, what, where can our children get an opportunity? They're not going to get in this country. If they can get out of Iran and go to Europe, maybe they'll find jobs. They're not going to find jobs here. You've described unemployment at roughly 125 to 14%. It's probably twice that number if you look across the board. And so what we're facing is an Iran that is in a desperate economic situation. But not only is it desperate economically, when you cannot find opportunities for young people, it leads to a kind of emotional frustration. And that's one of the reasons why there's a lot of discussion about liberalization, changing the Constitution, thinking differently about Iran, and even 
trying to recapture the spirit that existed when the Shah was president of the country. Herb, finally, if you were consulting this president, um, given what has transpired, and as you aptly pointed out, uh, the last time we saw an uprising, the president was very clear, Barack Obama, that he was not going to interfere, that he didn't want to do anything that would jeopardize the then talks going on between the U.S. and uh, Iran concerning a nuclear weapons deal. In this case, I have to wonder, given some of the comments that have been made by the president, do we hold some cards here? And if so, would you advise this president to consider making changes, including going back on the portion of the nuclear deal that addresses specifically the sale of oil? I would decertify the deal. I would not permit oil sales to Iran. I would try to introduce a sanctions regimen of the kind that existed before, and I would seize all Iranian assets as we can in North America. Yeah, ironically, the last deal that was done never took into consideration any kind of restitution for the United States for the losses that we undertook over the course of the 400-plus day siege on our embassy in Tehran, the lives that were lost, the money that was cost. Um, and, and many, I think, would agree with you, Herb, that we hold the cards here and we need to be playing those cards, not only for the benefit of the, the free people of Iran or the people of Iran that would like to be free, but also for the ultimate benefit of the security of that part of the region. Absolutely. You stated it well. Herb, we appreciate the time, as always, and the insights. There are a few that understand this as well as you do, and it's always a delight and a pleasure to spend some time with you. There is Herb London, president of the London Center for Policy Research. You can get more insights on his work at londoncenter.org. That's londoncenter.org. All right, we've got a little bit of business to take care of for you here, get you updated on some traffic. And uh, then don't forget, just about uh, 20 minutes away, we're going to get into uh, first official installment of the Parenting Project, our series that begins with Vern Tyler from the Hosanna Parent Project. That will be at 6 o'clock every evening, uh, every Thursday evening, I should uh, say, right here on Lifeline. We'll get to that coming up in right about uh, 17 minutes or so as the crow flies. Right now, though, let's get to a look at traffic. The latest with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, when you think of a lot of the challenges that our nation has been facing for the last couple of three years, uh, you know, unemployment situations, uh, loss of homes because of a foreclosure, uh, you know, it's easy to get discouraged, certainly to kind of live in that that place that's sort of permanent disappointment. And yet out of all of that, particularly for Christians, how do we we be uh, sort of adequately rise up and, and, and above all of that so we can go on with life and, and enjoy victory in our relationship with Christ. Well, that topic uh, centers around the title of a new book written by my next guest. Uh, you'll recognize her as having been the uh, Emmy Award winning co-host of Aspiring Women on uh, KTLN here in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's written a number of best-selling books. In fact, over 30 to her credit, including her latest, How to Get Past Disappointment, Finding Hope. And Michelle McKinney-Hammond. Michelle, great to have you on the show. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Boy, this is uh, this is a timely topic. So many people are just dealing with that kind of overall biting sense of disappointment of what's going on. They've, you know, it, Life can be tough enough, and then when you add to it the economy and so on and so forth, yes. I think a lot of people kind of get stuck in that place and they don't know how to get out. Yes, yes. Because they begin to see cycles. 
in their lives, and it, it leads to the, to the deception that this is all life has to offer, and well, I should just settle in and, and not expect more than where I am, and then we begin to to make choices that sink us even lower in, into that place, you know. And then I wonder, as that process is kind of taking place, um, if there needs to be a change in our thinking. You know, I think there are some Christians who who move into that position of defeat and disappointment, and they kind of, you know, kind of conclude that it's here, it's here to stay, so I have to learn to live with disappointment, right. as opposed to learning from disappointment and then moving on back into victory. Right. Because every disappointment, you know, a friend of mine um, all describes disappointment as a disappointment uh, in the sense that we make appointments in life for ourselves, decisions of, of what should be or how things should go. And when the other people don't meet us there, the other parties involved don't meet us there, we feel dissed, we feel um, cast off, um, and it just really invites a spirit of rejection that lowers our self-esteem and, and literally paralyzes us. Um, so that we do get stuck, as you said. And a lot of it, I think, then comes down to misguided expectations. I mean, let's think for a moment about people. Mm-hmm. How often do we live in that position of disappointment because our son, our daughter, our husband, our wife, uh, our parents uh, did something or behaved in a fashion that disappointed us, and now all of a sudden we're we're kind of stuck in that defeat position? Yeah, yeah. It's true, and, and, and you know, life is, is a greater thing than that, and so we really cannot base uh, how, the conclusions that we make on life based on what people did or didn't do. It has to be come from a, a deeper place. That's why I use the, uh, the woman at the well um, as an example um, in this book, How to Get Past Disappointment, because she had been through a cycle of disappointments that led her to the conclusion that that was all life had to offer for her. And, and the danger in that is that when we get so jaded by our disappointments, we can't recognize the blessing when it does present itself. And, you know, what's amazing about that story is that um, e- e- even as, as Jesus meets with her, mm-hmm. he knows exactly what's going on. Oh, yeah. You know, we, we, I think, sometimes think that we can kind of hide that. We try to mask those feelings mm-hmm. instead of coming to the terms with them or instead of dealing with the root cause of what is behind the disappointment and sometimes the role that we play because maybe we've gotten our eyes focused more on the person or the situation instead of keeping our eyes focused on Christ. And, and maybe as we're you know, kind of trying to keep up fronts, you know, keep up appearances, and yet Jesus fully knows what's going on, doesn't he? He does, you know, and, and, and what I think is important for, for listeners to know is that despite your bad choices, um, your seeming failures, or even uh, the contributions you think you've made to your life being the way you are, Jesus makes an appointment with all of us. I mean, Jesus went to that well to meet that woman on purpose. It was a purposeful decision to be there that day when she got there. Um, and I think that he... Um, is just as purposeful with meeting us in those places of disappointment. He has an appointment to meet us there, um, to show us another way, to show us another wellspring, another area of fulfillment um, that will bring about uh, what we've been thirsting for. I don't think that she even realized how deep her disappointment was until he started pushing her buttons and uh, getting her to see that there was an option. You know, so many people that I talk to who are disappointed feel they don't have any other option. 
Um, I was just talking to um, a friend of mine the other day on the phone in uh, another failed relationship, and she said, well, here I am alone again, um, and I don't think I'll ever have anyone. I said, well, maybe you don't have anyone today, but don't feel that because that person rejected you that you have no options. You have options. And as a matter of fact, uh, we exercise those options every day. I mean, I always tell single people, you're alone because you want to be alone, because there are people that you de- decided that you did not want to have in your life. Mm. You know, so don't don't say that, you know, oh, you, you, you are the helpless person in this. No, you've had options that you chose not to exercise. So you are single by choice. How to Get Past Disappointment, Finding Hope, the title of her new book, newly published again by Harvest House and available through Amazon.com, as well as through Bay Area Christian bookstores and bookstores overall. Uh, Michelle, as we talk about sort of realigning our, our expectations, talk to me about the process of moving from from fear to hope in in the backdrop of dealing with circumstances, sometimes of our own creation, sometimes beyond our control. But nevertheless, how do we go about making that transition from fear to hope? Well, it really is taking, taking our eyes off of what we consider the source to seeing the root of the issue because the disappointments in our lives are really the fruit that emanate from a root. And I, I think that a lot of times we live on the surface and, and we only deal with what we see versus what we don't see. Uh, when we look at the conversation that took place between Jesus and the woman at the well, we find out that the issue was deeper than her desire to be loved by these men. It really was a great need for God. Almost a crying out in a sense. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, you know, she was trying to fill a void uh, with the, to the best of her ability with something that was natural not knowing that what she needed was supernatural. Um, and, and it's very interesting because there's a very subtle uh, conversation that happens uh, when she tells Jesus, you know, this water that you're talking about, I want it because I'm tired of being thirsty and I don't want to have to come back here again. And I think that a lot of us are that way. We're tired of longing, and we don't want to keep revisiting the same issue over and over again in our lives. And he says, I'll give it to you, um, you know, go and get your husband and, now we get down to, to the nitty-gritty of confessing where we really are. She says, I don't have a husband. Well, I mean, she probably had been saying she had a husband. She was living with a man, according to the scripture. And he says, you've told the truth. And he congratulates her on it. He says, you've done well to tell the truth. So um, we know that the word says that the truth is what makes us free. It gives us the tools we need to, to get beyond where we are. And uh, so he congratulates her, he's very gracious with her, and says it's true that you don't have a husband. You've had five, and the one you're with now is not yours. So what he was bringing up was, here's this cycle that you've had in your life, and, and you, you've had five, five, six men, and you're still thirsty. You know, what have we continued to do and still felt the same longing, the same disappointment? even though we thought we were applying solutions to our, to our longings and desires. And I think that the light went on in her head, because even though she perceived him to be a prophet, the question that she asked him was not about the men. It wasn't about, will those relationships work out? It was, how could she get to God? Because obviously the men had never been enough. And I say that what God is saying to all of us in the middle of our disappointments is, 
Look to me so that I can show you the source of fulfillment. Look to me so I can give you the wisdom to find a better way to exercise different options in your life that bring about the victory that you desire. And, you know, you put it so well, because so often this ends ends up being a product of having put our trust, our faith, our hope and desire on something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, most definitely. And, and he must be. You know, he says, I am the rewarder of those who diligently seek me. And then he says something even more spectacular. He says, at my right hand are pleasures evermore. I am your exceeding and great reward. And the reward is the pleasure of being in my company. Because when I come into your life, I bring everything that you've been looking for. And all of those solutions are found in me. He, he's the one who gives us the wisdom uh, to, to gain the things that he knows we want. He's not opposed to us having what we want. But he wants to add what we need to the ball game too. Yeah. And sometimes we don't recognize that. I don't think that uh, that woman didn't even know why. We don't know, you know, the the inside scoop on all those relationships. He said she had had five husbands. So if he said five husbands and then differentiated that the one she was with was not hers, that means she had five legitimate husbands. What happened to them? Did they divorce her? Did they abuse her? Did they leave her? Did they die? We do not know. But out of it came a vow, obviously, that she was not going to put herself in the position to be disappointed again, and she made a bad choice. She made a choice that she thought would put her in the position of power by simply living with someone so that she could not be abandoned again. And we do that. We, we prop ourselves up and we begin to make compromises that we think are guarding our hearts, but it really puts us in the position for greater pain. We appreciate so much, uh, Michelle, the insights. I know a lot of this comes from your own life experience, and, and I'll let readers get a copy of the book to, uh, to get more details on that. Meanwhile, again, um, How to Get Past Disappointment, Finding Hope, published by Harvest House and available through Amazon.com and certainly at uh, Bay Area bookstores. Also information on the web at MichelleHammond.com. That's M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E, MichelleHammond.com. Michelle, thanks again so much for your time. 